This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about digital content and emerging forms of storytelling with Eva Miller, who's the manager of development at Canvas Media Studios. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for being me. here. All right, let's get started. Before we get into today's episode, we have an announcement to make, and that is that we have a WonderCon panel. We seem very excited, Nick. This is actually our second panel after our successful one last year on fandom. And this year, we'll be discussing how to adapt IPs to television. We'll have some awesome guests to talk about that topic, including writers and producers from DC's Legends of Tomorrow, The Flash, Hannibal, Riverdale, and My Little Pony. And the panel that we're doing is called Reimagined for TV, writing shows based on popular IP. And it will be happening on Sunday, March 25th at 1 p.m. in Anaheim at WonderCon. So if you're attending the con, you can stop by room 209 to see us blab for an hour with some of our amazing panelists. And now on with the show. So first up, just tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up in the industry and in L.A.? See, from Chicago originally, and I went to school at UC Santa Barbara, studied film and media, and then I moved back to Chicago for a little while because I knew I wanted to do something in this world, but not exactly what. I went to New York and studied editing for a while because I thought I wanted to do that and then realized that uh, I don't want to sit in front of a computer <laughs> all day with just myself. And then I just moved here. The first thing that I did was intern doing development, which I didn't know was a thing because I don't think it is a thing anywhere else. <laughs> um, and I really loved it because it was sort of the perfect combination of the business side of things and the creative side. And I got to work with writers and it's the creative part that I've always been really inspired by. But I also like the sort of logical part of it. So I interned for a producer named Carrie Seelig at Intuition Productions. And after interning for her for a few months, I went to work at a company called Herzog and Company, which did a lot of docudramas. They did the CNN series, the 60s and 70s and those. And Is that Werner Herzog's company? No, everybody <laughs> asks that. It's a it's Mark Herzog's company. Yeah. And so I was there for a number of months and I started moving into unscripted development, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And then Carrie, who I'd interned for, her C left to go work for Brian Singer's company. So I got that position and I was with Carrie as her CE for about three years doing traditional. We did mostly miniseries, limited series, we did The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe for Lifetime and then... After Camelot, which was the big Kennedy's follow-up for Reels. And then I was bringing in all these projects from these up-and-coming writers. And and it was really hard to get anything activated and traditional that wasn't really based on IP or had a really, you know, meaningful showrunner creator behind Mm -hmm. it. And so these original ideas 
a couple of the places that we took them out to were digital platforms, which I didn't really know much about until we did that. And I started looking up their content. There was a lot of really out there sort of risky stuff that wasn't really being done in traditional because, you know, the stakes are so high in traditional, whereas in digital, it's lower budgets and it's more niche oriented. And so you can sort of do those things like the awkward black girls that sort of need that proof Mm -hmm. before it can become insecure. So I, after being with Carrie for three years, went over to Canvas Media Studios, which is where I am now as our manager of development. And that's sort of how I ended up here. Can you tell us what Canvas does and if they have a mandate. Yeah. So Canvas was started a couple years ago by David Tochterman and Bernie Sue. David, longtime comedy TV exec, and he was an agent. And Bernie Sue was or is a creator in the digital space who really innovated and was one of the first people to really create these types of stories that were being distributed and collecting all these fan bases across new media. One of the first things he did was something called the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which was essentially an updated version of Pride and Prejudice, as if the main girl is a modern day vlogger and Darcy moves in across the street. And so it worked just as a plain web series. You could watch it from episode to episode, but there was also all of this added engagement where you could follow the characters as though they were real people on social media. You would interact with them live. You could buy their clothes. There were contests integrated. It really drew in people and rewarded them for added engagement. And it built up this amazing fan base of people that were really actually contributing to it. And it became the first digital series that was distributed on YouTube to win a primetime Emmy. And then he did that again the next year with something called Emma Approved, which was another update of Emma. That one also won an Emmy. So that was sort of the impetus behind the company and how it got investors, which we have a number of, including E1. And the idea was essentially to tell scripted stories using this new media, these new digital platforms, and sort of prove new models, just like he did with those. And I know uh, Bernie's also passionate about kind of creating stories and platforms for female-driven content. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so obviously those first two series were starring women. And that sort of became one of the things that we're trying to champion a lot of our stories that not only have strong women in them, but are really not presenting them as any sort of stereotype. And it goes for both in front of and behind the camera. We're trying to have female creators as well. So a number of our projects now are, you know, female driven and not all of them, but the ones that are, we really try and make sure that they're not falling into the same sort of roles that they've you know historically been so female driven is a mandate and also it's really about pushing forward new interesting voices and people that have something to say so we don't want to do anything that feels you know sort of old formulaic that kind of thing we're really trying to push boundaries and tell stories that haven't been told before sort of turn something on an angle that you haven't seen And can you talk a little bit about the avenues for those scripted series online and how the format sort of changes to suit those? Digital itself has changed a lot just since I first started at Canvas almost a year ago. And it's continuing to change. I don't think anybody really understands the digital space and people (laughs) who are working in it because it's evolving like every day. I'll talk a little bit about the original model that we did with a series called Vanity, which was Canvas's first show. And that was a soapy fashion drama 
starring Denise Richards, which Bernie also wrote. And it was a series of 11-minute episodes that were paid for and sponsored by Maybelline, although it didn't really feel like a sponsored thing because Maybelline was involved in the process and it would just sort of be a commercial at the end that's like, click here to get this character's right. look. But it was really high quality and did really well, nominated for a Daytime Emmy, and we'd purposely designed it as 11-minute episodes because while it was on Style Hall's YouTube channel, we were also able to just squish two of those 11-minute episodes together. Now it's a 22-minute episode, which is a length we can distribute internationally for linear television, which is what we ended up doing. So the idea was not just to create series that live online, but to create series where that online portion can actually become IP that we then use to make a linear show so that these stories can have a life on multiple different platforms. And how does that translate on the narrative level, especially if you're writing, let's say, two 11 pieces that can then become a 22-minute piece? How do you approach writing such format? You know, it's interesting because it really isn't that different. I mean, Bernie in particular knows exactly how to structure this and where the beats all go. But essentially, the idea is really you're just writing the story and making sure there's a beat at the end so that people want to come back. So you'll have to have that same structure, but it's supposed to feel like each episode is both closed-ended and also part of that larger narrative. Some of the other projects that we're working on are a little bit fluid. So we'll actually look at material that's written as a feature and look at how can we break this down into, you know, 10 parts or something. There are certain stories where it just kind of naturally works because of the pacing of the story. Really slow, sort of indie-feeling things wouldn't work as well, I don't think, because you're not as incentivized to come back after that short little episode if you're not left on some sort of a, a cliffhanger. Yeah. But a lot of these other digital platforms are doing the same thing. Like there's a platform called Black Pills, which is started out of Canal Plus, and they are attracting really big filmmakers, actually. They did something with Luke Besson and Zoe Cassavetes and Brian Singer. And essentially, they're taking just films and distributing them as 10 by 10 episodes. Some of the things they've acquired have actually come in as different formats and they've just broken it down. So people ask, well, what format do you want this in? It's actually at this point, it's really more about the story. We'll look at half hours actually, because we want to make sure that it can also work for linear if possible. And then, you know, see how we can break it down into smaller parts. But like I was saying, the industry is changing so much that if you're only targeting the length that, you know, a couple buyers are looking for, by the time you finish and have it produced, it's going to be different, you know? <laughs> so you want more content rather than less content. And then, you know, you figure out how to break it up for different distributors. So Bernie got his start on YouTube. Have you seen that platform in particular change over the years? And is it still as viable an avenue for people to get noticed? It's definitely still a viable avenue for people to get noticed but there's different youtube so there's just youtube which anybody can upload things onto and there's youtube red and youtube red has changed a lot because they're really going premium now low lengths have changed as well they're looking for more premium length materials as well so while there's still that general youtube creator driven portion of it and those can get just as many views as they used to get. The sort of prestige element of it is much more important to them in terms of the projects that they buy. So 
things that are coming in from people that have more than just influencer credits, that's going to attract a more premium audience. And that's sort of the direction that they're going right now. What are the pros and cons of emerging writers creating digital content themselves, whether it's a web series or short form content, and then putting them up online for people to see? There are a lot of pros and the cons are mostly financial, but it's a really good way if you haven't gotten hired onto other projects for you to basically show people your voice and get something made. You couldn't really do that, you know, 10 years ago. And now there really are a lot of shows that will gain an audience and will gain traction and will get people noticed and maybe even get representation and all of that. And the cons essentially are that there is a lot of content out there. It's hard for it to stand out. And if you're not doing something that feels different, it doesn't seem to really get people's notice as much unless they're really trying to make a bang. But it is a good way of getting your stuff out there and having something produced so that, you know, when people ask you what your experience is, you actually do have experience. It just hasn't actually been distributed by somebody who's who's paid for it. But Are there any specific platforms of distribution you would recommend, especially those aspiring writers or people trying to break in? Honestly, I think... People find their audience on different platforms. So right now, for example, it's like Snapchat and Instagram, and those are more younger millennials that really watch those and use those as their primary outlet. And then there's also Facebook, which obviously has become a force unto itself. You can still create your own content, put it on your page or whatever page your show is on. But like YouTube, it's you know, in order to get something sold to Facebook, that's different, that's harder. But I would say you want to release it on as many platforms as it makes sense to release it on, and then find where your audience seems to be. So I've talked to a number of different creators where for whatever reason, Facebook is where their audience is, or YouTube is where their audience is, and they get frustrated because they want the audience on every different platform. But the truth is, it doesn't really matter where they are as long as they're watching it. So I would say if you're doing something that could work on Facebook or YouTube, that's one thing. The Snapchats of it all, there are obviously there's a vertical format, which will only work on a couple of platforms. And you really have to design it so that it works for that. But if you're not really looking at that, you know, technical innovation as part of your story, then I would say you put it on Facebook, you put it on YouTube, you put it on Vimeo. Um, Landscape mode. <laughs> yeah. And then and then from there, you find where people are watching it, where they're engaged most, and that's where you focus. Do you feel there are specific genres or kinds of stories that are more suited to digital or OTT, VOD kind of platforms compared to the more traditional forms of entertainment? I think it's really demo focused. So the people that are watching stuff online tend to be younger and the characters in the shows also tend to be younger because people want to watch stuff that they can relate to. So if you're doing a show about a bunch of 50 year olds who all find themselves newly divorced and it's, you know, a drama, like I, I don't really think that sort of show is going to find a, a big audience on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but I would say the shows that are best suited for that tend to be the shows that are really about the people who are watching it. Can you talk a little bit about cross-platform content and what that entails? Cross-platform content is basically what Bernie did with Lizzie Bennet Diaries. It's a really good example. And it entails a lot more 
thought and a lot more planning because you have to really consider how your audience is going to engage. But essentially, just to like define cross-platform, it just means a show that uses multiple platforms to tell the story. So it can be something that is primarily on one platform and then has ancillary content on another platform or links to something else. For example, with Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the characters all had social media sites and you could follow them and they had profiles on that. That's, you know, a cross-platform storytelling, even though the main episodes were on one platform. So that can be a lot more rewarding and a lot more complicated. The trick to that is not to punish, and this is something Bernie did really well, was he didn't punish people for not also going to all of that other additional content. You could watch the show just normally as a web series and get everything. And then the people who wanted to do more were sort of rewarded with more pieces and, you know, Easter eggs and that sort of thing by going to these other sites and platforms in order to get the story. So I would say it's something where, one, it depends on the story, if it makes sense to really engage an audience. And two, it's really about the planning because you have to consider how they're going to engage and at what point they're going to engage and what their expectations are going to be so that you're not really disappointing an audience that thought they were going to have more of a role in something. It's just a really sort of case by case thing. Are you guys working in VR and AR or like 360 degree kind of formats? And then how do you approach that kind of storytelling? If so, we did do a 360 degree formatted show. And that was actually right before I started. So I wasn't around for that. But obviously exploring those new technological capabilities is something that we've been interested in. They're so emerging that I don't think people have quite figured out how to do them in a way that will make people seek them out for anything other than just, oh, cool, I haven't seen anything like this before. But there's obviously 360-degree videos only going to be right for certain stories that are set in certain locations where you really actually want to be using that feature. And with VR, there are a lot of places that are also VR focused. It's not our main focus right now. And part of that, again, is because I don't think the industry has really figured out how to monetize that as well as just plain digital series. And also, it's not really mainstream yet to have the equipment. So <laughs> you're kind of limiting who's going to be able to watch it. Can you talk about interactivity in the story and ways it can drive a narrative in unique and interesting ways? Interactivity is something that's obviously been really prominent in digital media because you can interact with it. And I think it goes both ways. There's a lot of stories that sound really cool when you're talking about, oh, and then the audience could do this and sort of choose their own story. And there's absolutely been things that have done that successfully and things that have done that unsuccessfully. Again, I think it really depends on the story. But the tricky part is you're asking a lot from your audience so it's trying to find that balance of where you're not making them do a lot of work just to watch something, but you're also letting them feel like they have kind of a role in it. So it's not something that we've done a ton of yet. And I think the reason, frankly, is just we're so focused on the actual storytelling element of it and are trying to sort of see where and what works on other platforms. And right now, that element of it hasn't really made it big yet. Do you have examples of either good or bad ways of using interactivity? I mean, a good example, again, is like the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and Emma Approved that worked well because it found its fan base and those fans really wanted to engage more. A bad example 
I can't really think of a specific one right now because so many of them have sort of popped in and then I hear about them and forget about it because they just <laughs> didn't work. So you don't want to be forgettable, basically. Yeah. So how important is social media and an online presence to what you guys do at Canvas, given that your kind of content lives within that same space online? That's a really interesting question because it's changed a lot. When I first started, that was really important. And the projects that we were doing had a lot more influencers in them. That was sort of the way that you could advertise things because these influencers would post it and sort of attract their audience to it. But one of the things that people found was that it did not translate the way they thought it would. The amount of followers a person has does not translate into the amount of views that they're going to get on a show that influencer is in. And part of that is people are watching these influencers because they want to watch their personality. They want to watch what they're talking about. Just because they're acting in something doesn't mean somebody wants to also watch them act. So it matters a lot for certain platforms. For example, I know Facebook does take into account when they're buying their shows the social media account and followers of the people that are in them. But the whole digital space has moved away from being influencer focused and focused on how many followers and that kind of thing and much more towards trying to get the people from traditional into the digital stuff because that way their content feels more premium and it attracts Mm. people based on the promise of a good show. Not just because somebody has lots of followers. It seems YouTube Red definitely made a big shift in that recently, and yeah, yeah YouTube all their Red, stuff like that. YouTube Red definitely they are becoming more like Netflix, and it's actually <laughs> funny because Netflix is becoming more like what YouTube Red used to be, yeah. where they're just buying lots and lots of content. <laughs> I mean, one is they have a lot of money and they can do that, and two is they have so many analytics and are really studying who's watching what and what's working. And so I think part of it is really them sort of trying to get that information and then use it later on. Yeah, it's a risk to get essentially return customers compared to all their future competition like Disney and Apple. Right. And like Apple's another good example of a platform that just started doing original content. And if you've followed any of what they're buying, it is, it's like you've got to have an Emmy or an Oscar just to Mm -hmm. get a, a show sold there. They're not in my mind, a quote, digital buyer, they're streaming, which I would right. sort of separate like an OTT those two. kind of yeah. thing. Like Facebook is also buying content and the talent they're getting is pretty high end. Yeah, they, they're right now, they have a really diverse sort of slate and they're still sort of figuring out exactly where they want to go with things. How is digital content financed and how does it become profitable, especially compared to linear TV with advertising and so forth? That's definitely something that the entire industry is still trying to figure out because (laughs) it's monetizable in different ways, depending on one, where your show lives. There's the model that is just like traditional where you sell it to a buyer and you get paid just like you would if you sold a show to TBS or, or CBS or any of those places. The other model is one self-finance. There's a lot of shows that the creators will sort of put out teasers and they'll get a shout out on something like Tube Filter, which is the digital spaces sort of trade magazine. And people will just sponsor it based on them liking the content that's out so far. The other way of doing it is you get sponsored by some you know company that aligns itself brand-wise with your show. That's a much harder way of doing it. It's really hard to get brands to sponsor something before they've actually seen it. But a lot of it, it really is selling the content to these platforms and then also 
finding a way that the show can potentially live on and be sold to multiple other places, like internationally or to linear television. So syndication, in a sense, is still a process for yeah, absolutely. digital content. So moving back to you, as manager of development, what is your role at the company and what does your day-to-day look like? I'm involved in the creative aspects and the packaging of the projects that we have. It also includes bringing in new creators and new scripts and new IP and sort of seeing how we can build that into a sellable package. A lot of what I do is taking the content that we already have and helping to package it up and get it to a point where it's creatively sound enough. It has the necessary attachments that we can actually take it out and sell it. The other part really is we also act as a studio So, for example, like we have a show that we're doing right now with MGM and the writer's room is going to be in our office. We're helping to produce that entire series. So it's sort of liaisoning between all those different elements and making sure that they're all like managed and everybody is sort of on the same page and that sort of thing. And how do you find those projects or material you're drawn to that you want to produce? Is it based on IP? Is it original material? It's all of the above. So sometimes it will be based around a creator that we really want to work with or a talent that we think is a really cool voice and could even be their idea that we then help develop with them. It also could be IP. Like, for example, we have a deal with Sony Rumble Yard right now, which is a division of Sony Music that uses their music IP to create series based around it. So we have a couple projects with them, and that was a case of going through the songs and albums that they have the rights to, and then picking out a couple of those that we thought actually could be turned into series. And then we internally created a take, went out to writers, got a writer attached, and now we have, you know, these cool shows based on music. So (laughs) it's a lot of like sort of innovating in terms of finding those pieces of IP that we can build off of and then building around it so it's like an actual thing. There's also just people will submit to us projects that are either partially baked or more fully baked and we'll sort of figure out whether it's something where we want to maybe produce a proof of concept or we want to turn it into a different format or we want to bring on another element it really comes from everywhere our eyes are always open and how do you find those writers and creatives that you want to work with in the first place well sometimes i go to readings which is how i met nick (laughs) (laughs) a lot of it is One, we do a lot of reading and watching of shows that are coming out or creators, you know, lots of lists where writers that are sort of up and coming will get on. And the tricky part is that because we're still sort of new, there's still an element of us having to prove ourselves. So it's more work to find those voices in that property that hasn't already been sent out and snatched up by the big, much more established companies. And part of the way we do that is really film festivals. It's reading the trades. It's going out and generally meeting people. It's having good relationships with agents. It's sort of all of the above. You kind of have to be in multiple different arenas to find those little needles in the haystack. So let's say you do find that project that you really want to develop. What does that development process look like, especially compared to more traditional scripted series? It's actually not all that different from traditional scripted series. The model has changed a little bit. When we first started, there was much more focus on actually producing parts of 
a show that we could then use as proof of concept. So there was a lot more production and people, buyers wanted to see what something would actually look like. Now, because everything has sort of become a little muddled where it's actually hard to differentiate where digital ends and just like OTD and streaming starts, it's pretty similar to just doing the regular scripted development process. In terms of what's different about it is ideally it takes less time because it can be shorter (laughs) content and, you know, this part of the business moves even faster than traditional television. And similarly, what does the production process look like for your projects? Is it on a smaller scale, faster timeline, that kind of thing? Generally, yes. Some of the projects that we're doing now, though, are actually more premium. They're going to be essentially sold to cable because of the type of content and the attachments that we have. So that process is just exactly the same. So for example, right now we're doing a series for MGM that's an updated version of Weekend at Bernie's. And that one is being produced by MGM and us. And then we will, once it has been produced, we will find a buyer to sell it to. That's sort of just believing in our own product and that will do the work and somebody will buy it. So the production process is actually moving incredibly fast for this one. We've got about, I think, four weeks of shooting for something that's 100 minutes long. So Mm. it's like essentially the same thing, but a little bit more accelerated because the length of the episodes is short. So it moves on a TV schedule, but it moves faster because there's less minutes of content to produce. Is it also fewer cooks in the kitchen, so to speak? I think it really depends on the project. But generally, yes, because again, it's as opposed to if you think about like a film being the slowest moving and then like traditional TV and then digital is the fastest moving. And really, it's the stakes are so, so high in film. They're still high, not as high in traditional. This is arguable, I suppose. But and in digital, they're even less. So the amount of pressure on like having all those big wigs and like having everyone have a say is just, it's less. It's a very creator driven arena because that's sort of the voices that started it. And yeah, I I would say it's faster is the general answer. Was it sort of a deliberate choice to not have a buyer or a network already lined up for it so that you could have a little more creative freedom there or do your own thing and then take it to someone and be like, take it or leave it? Or did just kind of the way that the process rolled out? That's how it worked. I don't know exactly what the motivation was behind it. Other than that, we felt like that MGM felt like we have the resources to do this and we know we'll be able to sell it somewhere. We might as well just go ahead and do it and then have our pick. It's, I guess, slightly riskier, but because they had the resources and because we all just believed in the product enough, we just figured let's do it. Let's opposed to taking all this time to try and find the buyer without actually being able to show how good it is. And what does a typical budget look like for a digital series as opposed to a traditional show? It's lower. It's usually (laughs) lower is the answer because there's just less money that's being spent on these series A lot of the distributors are actually owned by big companies. You know, if you look at like a place like Newform, that's owned by Brian Grazer's company, Black Pills, that's owned by Canal Plus, Facebook, obviously Facebook is Facebook and watches only a section of it. You know, places like YouTube, it's owned by Google. There's such big conglomerates that the content side of just scripted series is much less 
of a focus for the people at the very top that it's still a little bit experimental for them. So they don't want to put as much money into something that is still such a growing, evolving industry. And also the other part of it is it just doesn't take as much money to make these things. The equipment that they use isn't, you know, necessarily as expensive and high end, and it just doesn't tend to cost as much. So, Do you assemble writer's rooms for your digital shows? And if so, do they work differently than a traditional writer's room? Well, for example, there will be a writer's room for Bernie's. Um, so we do have writer's rooms and they work similarly. It's not necessarily as many days in the room. Often it'll be you know, a certain period of time where everyone's in the room to break story and then they'll go off, write their episodes and then come back later and, you know, whoever's in charge will sort of touch everything up. But it's generally, as far as I know, and I'm sure it works differently at different places, it's less time actually in the room. What length samples would you recommend people write and what are some genres or topics that you believe are a bit overdone? Um, in terms of lengths, I actually generally think if you're trying to go for a digital series, you could write something that's actually a half hour long and explain that you think it could be broken down more and just sort of have that in mind when you write it. But because the space is changing so quickly and it is moving towards premium lengths, it's much harder for me to be able to read something that's five minute episodes and see it as anything other than five minute episodes because it tends to be sort of one joke series as opposed to something that feels like it can arc and that it can go on more than just a couple very specific platforms that still have those lengths. In terms of content and types of genres and stories that are overdone, there's almost certain genres within genres that I <laughs> read constantly. And one of them is the dating genre. It must be at least one in every three submissions is about generally it's a girl who's in her 20s who is trying the online dating thing. And sometimes it's an older person trying the online dating thing for the first time. And sometimes it's a couple of people who are all dating in different, you know, arenas. <laughs> and the amount of stories that I hear like that, it's really tough to then convince me that it's going to be unique unless in your log line without having to go into more than one sentence why is it different if it's a person in a wheelchair dating? I haven't seen that yet, I guess. But the sort of just general person in that sort of arena dating, just don't do it. Um, I was going to sell you Tinder, the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's again, it's always something where the best take will win, but it's a much harder road to convince anybody to read your thing if it's simply about life as a 20-year-old. There are so many shows that are about a group of friends or about some people living in some city. Have a hook. That's like yeah, the biggest thing. Is friends. Like, have, a, have a hook that is not just your life. Um, I mean, maybe you have a really interesting life, I guess. But the settings are sort of important. I mean, one of the things I would say is keep budget in mind because you don't want to be stuck in a place where either you're going to sell to someplace that's going to make it look terrible or you're only going to premium buyers. So it can still be grounded and have a hook. It just, you know, set it in a place that isn't just generally the world. And are you mostly looking for comedies or drama? What is kind of that genre that you find yourself in? We are open to different genres. Um, comedy is always good. Drama is trickier but still good i'd say it's he's more on like the thriller side of things thriller and horror is just always because horror is so 
good to sell internationally. But I think it's skewing more towards the types of horror that actually have something to say, like a get out, for example, if somebody made that. I'm still waiting for somebody to make the Me Too version of Get Out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure a billion people are working on it right now. But in terms of genre, I would say it's more about budget. So it can still be sci-fi as long as, and there are, that's actually another one where it's uh, AI is a big thing that I hear a lot about now. So again, it's about having something to say that we haven't heard before a billion times and keeping it in a place where you can actually produce it for a price that isn't ridiculous. Especially for sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, Aside from fully written scripts and produced projects, are there other versions of kind of pitch documents that you guys look at or even that you produce yourself to kind of put out there? Like, what are the different iterations of, I have a great idea? That's a good question. So personally, and for our company, it's really hard for me to activate on something that is just a pitch. That's just an idea. Because what you're saying is you want us to pay you to write it. And unless it's a really big name, we don't really know that you're going to be able to do a great job writing it unless we already know you and you already have some sort of clout. If it's based on IP, that's a different story. So it could be a book that you have a take for. And you'd be surprised that you can really get rights or at least, you know, sort of shopping deals for content that you might not expect you'd be able to get. So doing as much as you can on your own before you come in and just sort of are asking somebody to trust that your idea is so good that they're going to think you're ready to just go ahead and write it. I would say like as much as you can, just go write the thing. And if you aren't going to write the thing, then have some sort of other element attached. It could be, I mean, talent is a big thing. And also if you've actually produced something before that people can see. One of the things we actually did was base something on a series of music videos. So let's say you produced a music video that can really be spun into a story or expanded into something that's much more interesting than just a a couple pages on your idea. What are some of the projects that Canvas has out now or coming out soon that you're excited about? And tell us a little bit about them. Well, I'm limited a little bit in all the projects that I can talk about because they haven't been announced yet. But obviously, Weekend at Bernie's is one of them that we're doing with MGM. It's a 10 by 10 updated version of the original movie that'll be sort of brought into modern day and be a little bit smarter. So MGM had the rights to the IP from that movie in their library. And yes, exactly. And we have a couple of other projects that are based on IP too. Actually, we have more than a couple. We have at least four projects that are based on IP and have some sort of talent attached. So for example, there was a book that was brought to us by a um, really well-known actress who's going to EP it and her husband will direct it. And that's a book that is probably going to go more in the premium direction because it's based on a really well-known, I guess I would say, poet, suicidal poet. And it's sort of the story of like her before she became this depressed icon when she had this thirst for life and was living in New York at this Barbizon hotel where everyone else is off being housewives. And she's like this ambitious sort of progressive woman. That's something that we're doing with E1, who's an investor in the company, and that will be going to premium. And we have a well-known writer who's 
going to be attached to that one. We've also got a couple of YA books that we're doing with Sonar Entertainment that we're going to then take out to buyers. Those are both in the teen space, but they've got, they're edgier. You know, one of them is really sort of a, a he said, she said about a relationship gone wrong in a way you haven't quite seen before. And the characters are not at all stereotypes, really complicated people. And the other one is a story that's set among a group of friends in their senior year of high school, but it's got a magical realism element to it that makes it really sort of different and tonally interesting. And we've got a, a couple of projects that we're doing with Sony Rumble Yard, which are based on IP. One of them is based on a Willie Nelson album. Those are obviously also sort of started from like having some sort of element there because Bernie is obviously a successful writer director has come up with original ideas that we've pursued as well and there's you know a number of other sort of projects on the slate but those are awesome sounds like you guys are doing a lot of exciting stuff what are your own kind of goals and aspirations for your career where would you like to end up in a dream scenario in a dream scenario i would be producing stories that really make some sort of a difference and say something that you haven't heard before and that causes people to think in a way that they haven't done before. In terms of what format that is, it's not actually as important to me. Because my background is in TV, that's the direction that I'm going. But I'd love to work either at a production company that I'm heading or that I've started eventually, or at a studio that makes content that really makes people sort of think in a different way. Did you have any inspirations, whether it's film or TV when you grew up, that inspired you to be in this industry? Growing up, I don't even think that there was any, there, there was no movie in particular, although that was where I really wanted to be was movies, not TV, because growing up, TV was kind of like the ugly stepchild of um, <laughs> yeah. film. But it was more, the inspiration was the audience while they were watching a film in a movie theater, because growing up, is tough, especially as like a girl in junior high school and you feel sort of awkward and alone and you don't feel like people are connecting to you and that sort of thing. And going to the movies and seeing that everybody was feeling sort of the same things and reacting to something that's not even actually real on screen. But there's something about that shared experience that made me feel really connected to the people that I felt I wasn't connected to otherwise. And also leaving a movie theater after seeing something that sort of stays with you. It's just the power of that emotion and of stories in general and the visceral effect of watching something as opposed to reading it was something that I just found so powerful and that I wanted to be able to, you know, do for other people. All right, before we head out, we got a couple more questions for you. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm watching a variety of things. One of the shows that I really like right now is called The Good Place. Oh, and it's a yes. network comedy, which is not generally what I watch. But it has these amazing twists to it that just that's the kind of thing that really has grabbed me. Also, well, not right now, but. In general, Game of Thrones is my number one show mm -hmm. ever. Let's see, I watched Mindhunter was one of them. 
other show that's amazing, which I didn't even start watching until after it won these Emmys, was The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, that show is so amazing. It I is, binged it one day in December. It's so good. It's excellent. I mean, I generally will watch an episode or two of a lot of different shows and then only really follow through on very particular ones. But Handmaiden's Tale, it's another one, but sort of a combination of comedy and drama. Anything that sort of turns a, a genre on its head tends to very much intrigue me. Another question. Do you have any last advice for TV writers, whether they're wanting to work in digital or otherwise? Honestly, advice for TV writers in terms of the people that I've seen that are successful or seem like they're going to be successful versus the people that I'm more concerned about, take notes. Just take notes. Like Either you want to write as just a fun outlet, or you're trying to write as a profession, in which case you're trying to get paid for it. And if somebody is giving you notes, you can explain why you don't agree with that note or try and figure out whatever that note behind the note is. And obviously, there are some where you just don't want to budge. But the writers that I've found that seem to be very successful are incredibly good at taking notes. And the ones that I'm more concerned about are the ones that just won't budge, in which case that's fine, but you're not going to be able to sell it to people that want to be able to put in their own input. Um, The other thing I would say is write a lot. Don't just write a lot and keep it on your computer and don't show anybody, like actually send it around. Because I think a lot of people are really worried about being judged because they send something out that somebody doesn't like. And the interesting thing is I haven't really noticed a big correspondence between the level of writer and the quality of the writing. It takes so many drafts, even from really big writers, to get to a point where people are happy with it. And they're just so used to sending it out that their strength is not necessarily in that first draft. It's in taking those notes and it's in evolving the story. And that sort of fear of, oh God, I I don't want to send this out because like, what if it isn't perfect is really much more new emerging writers than it is established ones who will still send bad stuff. They just know they can make it better. It's called the vomit draft for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. And lastly, do you have any resources for TV writers, be it books, movies, podcasts, apps, whatever it is? I would just read a lot of scripts. That's how I've learned the most. And also have other people read your scripts because you'd be surprised how much you might think, one, that your ideas are really original and they may have been at one point, but like other people reading them will be able to tell you what they've seen before and what they haven't seen. And also will be able to give you that feedback that you're inevitably going to get anyway. But I would say like go through, you know, the blacklist and the bitch list. Those sorts of lists will give you a, a really good idea of what's working, what people are really liking. And that would be my, my biggest thing is just read other scripts. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. So thank you to all of our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 80. And if you'd like to leave us a review, we would also like that very much. You can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those reviews are going to help us find new listeners and build our little community. And thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Paperteam listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Eva? 
Not really. <laughs> if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to have an episode all about TV criticism, and we may have a few special guests with us to discuss that. I'm preemptively rating it five stars out of five. Two thumbs up. <laughs> we'll see you next week. See you then.